Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me today on a bright autumn day here in the capital is Bill Clark on the programme. Bill is the director and co-secretary of Blue Moon Cafe in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. He's been director and co-secretary of the company since 1995. Uh, Bill, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure. I'm very pleased to be here. It's a real pleasure for us to welcome you onto the show as well, Bill. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership at this point and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves in the hospitality industry, I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. They certainly are. And... Um we are now, we are open and we are running a very reduced open hours on a very reduced staffing level. So we started off by uh, having a short period of takeaway food only, uh, but we've been open for sitting uh, service since the beginning of August. Um, it's been very, very difficult and um, the uh, the current uh, situation and the, the current um, uh, concern about uh, the spread of the virus um, has meant that our takings have been reduced a bit. Um, so um, it's very, very difficult to see what the future then lies, really, how the future lies. Um, we did have, we had 12 members of staff um, who've been made redundant, and they were made redundant at the end of August when the furlough scheme started to wind down. Uh, so we're now operating with five among the staff, whereas previously we had uh, 19. So it's been a big reduction uh, and a big, big change right across the board. Certainly sounds like um, it's been um, a time of real change for you in order to pivot and deal with the challenges of uh, this pandemic for sure. And it is always difficult when people do have to, of course, uh, be um, one of the uh, the costs of that. With regard to the hospitality sector, just given the fact that two weeks ago, of course, new national restrictions in England came into place with, of course, the uh, the curfew. And it's looking likely to be that we're going to be in this situation for at least the spring, according to the prime minister. What do you think the long term effect of all of this is going to be on? the industry and its prospects of making it through? Well, uh, I think the, the long term um, is uh, very much in the hands of uh, the way in which town centres develop because um, whilst, um, of course, uh, we've been affected very seriously by the COVID restrictions, um, there are underlying problems and underlying economic issues, uh, particularly with the reductions in the footfall in town centres, where right in the centre of the 
city of Sheffield, and if people aren't coming to work and if people aren't coming into shop, then we don't have uh, we we feel the effects of that uh, fairly uh, dramatically. And I think that um, the longer term uh, future has to address some of those underlying issues um, because uh, without increased footfall and without making the centre of the city an attractive place for people to visit, um, uh, outfits like us uh, will find it very, very difficult to survive. One of the things that we did find, I did find before we were locked down, is that we we had an occasional evening function uh, at which our food was very different and more expensive, and that was very successful. And um, the idea that uh, we should provide um, city centre relatively cheap food, which is which has been our way of working, um, maybe that uh, those days are gone. Um, I just want to make a, a few uh, comments about how we uh, attacked reopening, because mm. um, that, in a way. Um, is a, a, the way in which we're going to uh, continue in the future. Um, I, I realised um, right at the beginning of the lockdown that um, we were only going to take back uh, a few members of staff. And then um, we started off um, by having Zoom meetings of the five members who were going to come back and um, discussed very, very openly about the financial implications of that, what kind of service we provide. Um, and that went on for a few weeks. <clears throat> and um, as part of that, uh, various members of the team took on different jobs. And so that the, the approach to something much more collegiate than, uh, than it was before. Uh, well, I've maintained uh, responsibilities in making difficult decisions. So I haven't involved the staff with making decisions about redundancy, for example, but they are fully aware, they were fully aware that they were inevitable and they were, they were going. So what's emerged out of the lockdown has been a very much more cohesive team of staff working together and solving problems um, than, than existed before. And I think that's, that's the foundation on which I hope we'll be able to go forward. Um, and, uh, and I think they're necessary for a lot of businesses. But um, uh, traditional kind of top-down management has its limitations. And that um, you can tackle problems together, um, however difficult they may be. Mm, exactly right and you've seen so much over the course of the lockdown period that people have stood up and been counted during a time of adversity and really brought the best out in themselves and it has been a massive boost for leaders so for sure that people have really applied themselves well during this period as yeah, for yeah. um the sort of um how the hospitality sector can be expected to uh, to recover from this even mm-hmm. when we do have a working vaccine in place and COVID-19 is no longer an issue, can you still see there being some kind of hangover just because of the lingering anxiety and the effect that all of this will have had on consumer confidence, even when the virus is no longer a prevalent issue? 
I think that's I think that's certainly the case, and I think that people uh, people have got used to uh, online shopping, um, and uh, the uh, shopping trips to into the city, which have been a you know a traditional makeup of uh, part of city life, will be uh, substantially reduced, and I think there will be a hangover. Um, people will be reluctant to go out and about and do the kind of things that they uh, have been doing. And that's partly because um, it's been very difficult to get clear messages uh, across to the public uh, about the uh, the virus and the various uh, ways in which the virus has been coped with and trying to be diplomatic and polite here. Um, but, but those kinds of messages uh, haven't been particularly clear. And I think people have developed a kind of distrust of um, the official pronouncements and that is going to have a, that's going to have a hangover uh, even after the vaccine, if, if we do get a vaccine, um, is uh, introduced and is widespread. Mm, certainly is going to be um, an interesting time, um, isn't it? Um, so let's just keep our fingers crossed that we do certainly have a uh, vaccine in place yeah. because that's yeah. going to be yeah. so, so crucial. Um, also, yeah. um, just um, thinking about sort of how this pandemic has affected everybody mentally, just how has it been sort of handling um, your business from a mental health point of view? Because I can imagine with the redundancies and also with sort of the real changes in the business, it was sort of a challenge having one or two quite tricky conversations with people. Well, um, I think the, the solution to that is to tackle things early. Um, and um, I, I mean, I think all of our staff have been, um, have had problems coping with uh, the, had, with the lockdown. Um, but I think as far as um, coming back to work is concerned, uh, the earlier you start conversations, and the earlier you keep those conversations going about how the business is going and how how the future is, then I think um, that is uh, to the to the benefit. I mean, it, it's a it's a bold, a risky move. This, but um, all our staff were on uh, effectively zero hours contract uh, before the lockdown. Although um, any uh, sharp uh, Employment lawyer would have told me that, uh, as most of the people worked fixed hours, um, that was um, a dubious kind of contract. I've changed all the contracts um, in discussion with the staff, so they they now all have uh, a set number of hours. Um, everybody works four days a week, and uh, so they they have a degree of um, security for the future. And I think that's been important. Um, that, that's been important for the staff's um, well-being and, uh, and enable them to look to the future with a little degree of certainty. Mm. And 
it, the future is, um, of course, anything but certain in itself at the uh, the moment, just yep. because guideline circumstances can change at very little warning. Um, but if we try and sort of look into a crystal ball um, to be metaphorical and just sort of understand what the future holds for yourself and for Blue yep. Cafe, Bill, um, yep. I'm interested to understand where you see yourselves in a year's time, because um, over the next few months, we know that we're probably going to be in this sort of new normal until the spring, maybe slightly longer. But hopefully in mm-hmm. that time frame, we are also going to have a working vaccine fingers crossed so what is it you're hoping to achieve over this next year and where do you see yourselves being in 12 months well i hope that um the cafe will grow very slowly and um, we will uh, win back um a lot of the customers that we've lost um a number of um chains have uh, closed um in the city and we hope that we'll be able to claim some of their customers. Um, so looking forward to, um, say, next autumn, uh, I would hope that we will be able to possibly extend our opening hours a little bit, maybe at the weekend, um, and uh, uh, build up a, a solid customer base. Uh, but it's very, very difficult to, to see into the future very clearly but that's what I, you know, that, that, those are my hopes for the future. Um, making sure that uh, uh, we don't run, uh, you know, we don't uh, open in the evenings uh, just to lose money. I mean, it's very, we have to be very, very cautious about expanding the business and, uh, and also to make sure the staff understand that and they have all the financial information to enable them to, they go along with what we what uh, uh, they they decide and and we or we decide together. Mm-hmm. Certainly, is going to be a very interesting uh, few months for businesses all over the uh, the UK yeah, and um, a very sensitive yeah, time yeah. as well. Um, and mm-hmm. let's just keep our fingers crossed that we will be out of this sort of sense of stasis sooner rather than later, and the economy can start building back up before long. I have to say, Bill, it's been a real, real pleasure having you uh, join us on the uh, the programme today and very enlightening as well to hear what's been going on behind the scenes. And I actually think it would be Good. wonderful at some point to catch up in the next few months and have you back on our programme just to see how things are coming along and we can assess just how far we've come in the time between our discussions. I very much appreciate that and I've enjoyed talking to you. It's been wonderful, Bill. Thank you ever so much once again for taking the time to join us. It really is appreciated in the wider context of what we're doing. And most importantly, do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. And that goes for everybody associated with the business. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to welcome Bill Clark, Director and Co-Secretary of Blue Moon Cafe, onto today's programme. And I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners. Please do continue to be sensible, consider others and look after yourselves because it makes such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, coming up next on today's programme, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career, having served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his premiership. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015, and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. Here it is now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a credible opposition nor an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.